0: Hello and welcome to Shades and Layers. I'm your host, Gudwanus Kosana Ritchie, and today we are focused on the coffee industry. Our story takes us to one of Africa's top coffee producing countries, Kenya, and this gives us the perfect opportunity to expand our ever evolving conversation on sustainability and, of course, to update our masterclass notes on entrepreneurial success. My guest, Vava Angwenyi, hails from Kenya and is the founder and chief coffeeholic at her very own export company and brand, Vava Specialty Coffee. She is also the author and publisher of a book called Coffee Milk Blood, a celebration of coffee culture that shows a different and very little seen side from the coffee industry. There are no coffee shops or brewing machines in any of the photos in this coffee table book. Bava's work also has an educational aspect to it. And for this part, she has combined resources with a Colombian partner to create Gente del Futuro. And together, they educate local youth in Lamu Town where she works most of the time on all aspects of the industry, from agronomy to bean roasting. Now, it goes without saying that this is yet another space or industry that has deep inclusion issues. And my guest today is one of a handful of industry disruptors on the African continent. And as always on Shades and Layers, the lessons are in the story itself. So listen closely and enjoy this amazing tale of triumph from Vava Angwenyi.
1: My name's Vava Angwenyi, and I like to say many things, and I don't like to pigeonhole myself, but for the sake of like people knowing what I do, I'm a coffee exporter primarily, but also producer and entrepreneur, so very passionate about businesses that can have an impact on community. So other than exporting and growing coffee with my family. I'm also an educator in the coffee space, running a coffee program in Lamu town and also a cafe in Lamu town. Yeah. So that is the snippet intro. Mm -hmm.
0: And, you know, I always ask my guests, what's the deeper meaning you attach to the work that you do?
1: It's a very good question. (laughs) Then for me, I would say because of all the opportunities I have been given by the universe, and when I say the universe, it's all the people that have come across, my my family, my, and all the, the people that have walked into my life, I believe that I owe it to, to the universe to give back with my skills and with my gifts that, that were bestowed upon me. So for me, it's taking what I have identified as my purpose in life and utilizing that to help people around me either become better or to discover things themselves. So in all the things that I there's always like an ingrained part of that. It's not just about making money. There's got to be some positive outcome or discovery that comes out of it.
0: Mm -hmm. So it's 2009. You have this idea to give back (laughs) or to start something that will bring about change. What's been leading up to that event where you say, that's it. I'm starting this Vava specialty coffee and this is what I'm running with.
1: Well, prior to that, I think the the bug, like the itch started way back when I was in Canada as a uni student and started asking questions around, you know, the coffee shops I went. I hung out at a Team Hortons quite a bit, Starbucks, you know, because there was coffee shops on campus. And as a student, you're I was taking one of those courses where you really need to be caffeine loaded to stay up (laughs) and spend a lot of time. But I also really used to question things around economics and uh, demand supply and reference that back to what I saw back home. So looking at, I think it's just the discovery of what I saw in terms of branding of coffees from Kenya, coffees from Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, and other origins. And started asking questions around the storytelling, but also the price. And when you sort of look at how coffees are branded or how people talk about coffees from the origin in consuming countries, you wonder, you always wonder, does this farmer know where the coffee went? Does the farmer really get accredited properly? And what is the story behind it? And how much, to be honest, it was more like, how much are they getting paid? And then looking, referencing back to like my grandmother at the time because she was the one like in charge of the the coffee farm, and wondering how they were so unhappy all the time. Like, oh, we didn't get enough money. We didn't get enough money, all of that. And mm-hmm. I don't know for some reason. I think because I loved to drink coffee, and I was always about like whatever knowledge I'm getting here in Canada, I'd like to take that back home
2: mm-hmm. and somehow.
1: Mm-hmm. I was one of those like kids from Africa who are like, I really. Didn't have that whole bag of like, I want to stay in Canada for the rest of my life and whatever. I was just like, I want to take the most out of this place and go back home with it and make my community a better place, you know, like use the knowledge and and go elevate my people. So with that, the bag stayed with with me. And I remember having even conversations with my dad was still around at the time and trying to see how best or what I could study that matched my skills, which were numbers and just economics. Mm. So with that, for some reason, like some conversations I kept having with my dad growing up were he always used to call employment slavery. And he was <laughs> like, I never want you to, he's like, I never want you to be enslaved to someone and, and work a typical nine to five. I want you to have the luxury and the freedom to make your choices. So my parents typically invested quite a bit. Interesting. In yeah. So. Yeah. And funny enough, they were both, you know, employed. But I guess at the time, because of, you know, security and having, you know, kids, it was sort of entrepreneurship was never really like a thing a lot of people did, you know, even today, it's like, right, Mm -hmm. it's, it's something that we in Africa talk about, but it's practically hardly even none of my friends are really entrepreneurs. Like I, I started making friends in different circles when I was like, I have to find my group of people that understand the entrepreneurial struggle. But a lot of Folks that I went to school with are not entrepreneurs. They're mostly working nine to five jobs. Right. Mm -hmm. For me, I would say it's the bug, like, cause I, I would say my dad was one of the the biggest influences in that decision was that whole thing of nine to five is a slave job. Like, you're just not going to be happy. I'm giving you all this tool so that one day you can build something and do it, you know, be happy with what you're building. And then I discovered coffee. And then I was like, I I really want to do something for coffee producers. In, not just in Kenya, but in Africa. And I was thinking, initially, I was thinking along the lines of policy implementation and policy changes, because I know that a lot of the regulations and, and policies that Kenya has been um, trading with were are mostly from the colonial era. Mm. So I wanted to sort of come back and see how I may influence government policy and see how we can change things for producers in that sense. So that is how, like, it all started. And then with time, I I slowly gathered the the bravery to sort of tell the people around me, especially my mother, because at that time, she was now a widow. And there's that expectation in African culture that you don't go do something so risque, like don't have an income for a while, and you're going to go borrow money to start a business. Start so, a business, yeah. <laughs> so just don't do that. <laughs> just don't do that. So it took me quite a while to actually reveal that but in the at the back of my mind I always knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial yeah
0: so storytelling is a big part of how you are promoting the growth and also changing perceptions of coffee production and you know understanding where things come from mm-hmm. so what would you say we are not seeing about how coffee is produced where it comes from and who's making it And are we starting to see any changes, seeing as we are hopefully going beyond the colonial era now?
1: Well, I'd say things are slowly changing. I mean, but I'm glad to see that things are slowly changing rather than not changing at all. Just from, you know, where I stand, there's been, i will say there's people listening, finally, and especially the business owners in, in the consuming countries, some, especially roasters, who are becoming more, Aware that how they've been representing producers is the wrong way, that it's been always in a colonial lens. I think you've come across my book, Coffee, Milk, Blood. Yes, I have. And that book alone was triggered with just after years of being in an industry that really did not see women like myself who are from a producing country, you're a business owner. You know, there's always that expectation that if you're not like one of these big coffee companies or if you're not from a consuming country, you're really like a small, tiny person in, in the specialty coffee industry. So people just ignore you. Know, you're, you're more like a flower on the wall most of the times. Right. You know, it's base- it's like a lot of uncomfortable conversations that I had with peers as I was trying to get into this industry because it's a very like... It's like a club of, you know, people who know each other, sort of cliques and things like that. And to be honest, when you're not a big player, even from Kenya, you're ignored. People are like, oh, yeah, she's just trying to make some noise and whatever. So it took a lot of like, for me, like just doing things differently from and I was not shy. I was just like, I just have to do my thing, because even when I got into the Kenyan coffee sector and, and you know, got my exporting license and everything. Like people laughed at me. People were like, oh, what does she think she's going to do? Like, and I would say that naivety has served me well. It's not something that I advise, you know, people to do, but I think sometimes naivety is a good, great. Tool. You don't
0: know any better.
1: Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. And you think yeah. you can conquer the world and take over. Like I just went in with the naivety that I know that uh, change can come. I know my, my story is different and I can do things differently. And everyone kept saying, everyone kept referencing the big companies in Kenya. And They're like, so how do you compare? to? this? like, I'm not comparing myself to them because I would never have the same resources as them. But I know that I can slowly doing things differently and people will notice. So when you talk about like the storytelling and and all of that is like there is a way that when you want people to to finally maybe stop and listen or like collaborate with you or do things differently i i sort of figured you also can't go and rough them up or you like going in with a lot of aggression at times doesn't work it's more you have to take an educational approach
2: mm-hmm.
1: because given the history of colonialism and given the history of even how Kenya operates right now in certain sectors Sometimes white folk just don't know that they are being racist or they don't know that, you know, they are doing things. Some people just don't know because that's been the norm. So nobody's ever going to be like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no, I feel like uh, you're undermining my abilities or anything. (laughs) Even as African or, or black people are very afraid or like a lot of us don't speak up. We just go with the state of school and you're like, hey, I just need to make a living and blah, blah, blah. But when you've got nothing to really lose, you can really forge your own path and make people stand still and, and be like, hey, you know, I see something different here. So when you right. ask about the progress, I, I started noticing even before the book that people were really leaning in and, and asking or looking at, OK, so what is, what is she saying about like economic empowerment and how it's different for folks in Kenya? And we look at it differently, you know, with you know the gender, you know, so all of those things and and to be honest, it's when you take the educational approach and when people are finally realizing that they've not really been listening to all mm-hmm. the that they are working with, then, you know, the ethics of uh, really dictates that certain things have to change. I know I've like answered your question in like a long. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I, I was actually yeah coming to the to the fairness part. Right. There is something called fair trade. I hate that term because it has all sorts of connotations, but you know, when you talk fairness in who gets paid what, you know, are you starting to see a change there or, you know, do you find that there's still a lot of uh, attempts to undercut pricing and just not paying the fair dues to the people who are running the farms where coffee is grown, etc.
1: I think there's a lot of talk in the sector about ethics and people ethically buying, but hardly anyone does it. Like very few people are happy to pay the correct or the right price to producers simply because we've been hiding behind the certifications for a while. Mm-hmm. Because also like like you, I have a problem with the word fair trade. I feel like it should be fair economics. Like it should just be not even fair. It should just be profitable trade, not yeah. fair. Yeah. Because fair yeah. also has, has that connotation that we're just going to be, we're trying to be nice. Like, we're just going to try and be fair. <laughs> it's, not like, charity, well, you know? <laughs> it's not a charity, you know? like Farmers are trying to be profitable and farmers have the toughest job that nobody really understands. Like, And especially with issues around climate change and industries changing, like in Kenya alone right now, there's a lot happening in terms of change within the coffee sector, but also change economically. Because of things that have happened with past governments and the present government, and so standards of living have changed, you know, not for the better. Climate change is upon us. But you find that the consuming countries, the buying the the folks that are buying the coffee often are the ones dictating the terms. You find that as an exporter, you cannot export coffee that is not of a certain caliber with Europe, with Canada, with whatever because, all of these countries set you know what they call gap measures, like you know some say if it's not organic, we don't want it, you know they send the coffee to the lab, whatever so there's all of those barriers to entry that wow. that producers are the ones that have to fulfill this uh, sure. barriers to entry, otherwise they cannot sell the coffee, so you find that there's the European standard of trading, there's the American one, and then you find Canada also has its terms and regulations for you know what is exportable quality. So I find that the there's no the the skills are never going to be balanced. That's I think that's just a fact of life because of demand supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I have to say that there's a few good people within the sector that actually listen and want to pay better. But you find that even sometimes you can start a relationship with a roaster who truly wants to do the right thing, but the moment something happens in their economy that impacts their business some don't even hesitate to just cut off mm. you know the volume be it the producer they're just like hey we're struggling too bad not realizing what that repercussion has on both the exporter producer whatever so i find that sometimes there's such a selfish reaction with some of the partners you know you know in the market it's like we're good up until a certain point. Right, and right. And when I am impacted economically, I don't even think twice. Some you can negotiate, but with others, it's like an unnegotiable and you have to really just go find another home for the coffee. Wow. So when you ask yourself, where does a farmer, if a farmer has been relying on you for three, four, five seasons, it's back to square one and looking for a new home for the coffee, for the volumes that have been dropped, all of that. It's really a lot of work. I know it's business. So Mm -hmm. I think farmers and folks like myself really have the tougher job in just sometimes we're just recipients of whatever befalls the importer or the roaster, which is never going to be fair.
0: Yeah. But so what's your countermeasure then?
1: It's always to like, don't ever just uh, rely on like a certain set of clients always like diversify one for me it's always diversify your revenue stream but also try and limit your risk by having like other options of clients who could pick up whatever is not picked right. up so never quite put all your eggs in one basket you like in this industry if you do that like you could easily like mm-hmm. shut down your business mm-hmm. you always mm-hmm. have to be on the lookout even if you have trusted clients they they will totally understand if cuz when stuff happens on their end and they have to chop volumes chop you off they will simply tell you in a nice way and then you (laughs) you will just have to go resolve whatever plans you had made financially elsewhere and life continues so i always say as an entrepreneur diversify and always with even as a producer you you gotta have diversification
0: right right This is Shades and Layers, and today we are focused on coffee industry in Africa. My guest, Vava Angweni is one of a handful of women coffee exporters from the continent. She is also the founder and chief coffeeholic at her eponymous specialty coffee company. Up next, we talk about the African coffee market and coffee drinking culture. So I'm hearing EU standards, Canada, US, what about the African market? How is that looking as a potential place to export Kenyan produced coffee?
1: Well, I wish we would be more organized as African countries <laughs> <laughs> really yeah. really work on what we talk about at AU meetings in terms of the whole NEPAD and and Africa Trade Agreements. There's a lot of potential on the continent to be honest, especially like you know when I get approached by folks in South Africa because you know they don't grow coffee but they do have a vibrant um, coffee market there's 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 barriers to export as well in Africa and sometimes I'd say like I've gone through a situation where it was tougher for me to ship in coffee from Tanzania than it is to actually ship coffee out of Kenya like and I was just like <laughs> and more expensive so I think we need to get our act together, especially our leaders in terms of just easing trade within boundaries, especially agricultural produce. But I would say there's a lot of potential in growing our own markets locally in terms of just Mm -hmm. trying to increase consumption locally. But, you know, you can, we also blame colonialism for that. Not the uptake has not been so great because colonially we were not allowed to consume good coffee we, we, You know, most of us like colonized by the British are more tea drinking countries, but even we don't drink the good tea. So colonialism has a role to play in African, I would say, consumption habits, especially when it comes to agricultural crops like coffee and, you know, tea. Mm-hmm. So, but I would say there's, there's room for growth there, but it will take, I would say, the next generation. It's going to take the young people to really switch up all of this colonial sort of habits we have with, you know, consuming things like coffee and tea.
0: Right. Speaking of education, let's get to Gente del Futuro.
1: (laughs) Thanks for pronouncing it
0: well. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me about that alliance and uh, how it works, who's involved, etc.
1: So Gente del Futuro is a project we started in 2017 with a Colombian partner, both based in Tanzania and Colombia just taking a program that had been implemented in uh, Medellin and trying to replicate it in, in Tanzania. Initially, we supported 12 women, six Kenya, six Tanzanian women, in exposing them to the coffee sector beyond the farm. So, but also like the trigger for this is just realizing that as an industry, there is a danger, given the average age of coffee producer is now 63 in Kenya, there is a danger that coffee production Volumes will never be the same, or there's a lot of abandoned farms because young people are really not interested in agriculture. As a young person growing up as well, we were not encouraged to do agriculture. Personally, I took agriculture as a subject in school. Right. So I'm happy that I did that. But if you ever told someone you're going to be a farmer on graduating from uni, everyone would laugh at you. Like people will be like, oh my God, like has she lost it? Remember? Like I have experiences where people will be like, okay what exactly that's supposed to be like a side thing where you go you know maybe farm on the weekends but it's not a real job like what is what are you talking agriculture none of us ever thought about the value addition aspects or anything like that agriculture was a form of punishment in fact for most of us (laughs) you're, you're gonna go dig just because you've done something naughty so We looked at, you know, rates of unemployment in in all of these three geographies, and you're looking at, you know, issues that affect young people, be it drugs, be it, you know, when you're unemployed, you're idle, and a lot of negative things happen in society. So after the success of like a reiteration of these programs, we decided to now do it in Lamu, and the idea is one, to decommoditize coffee, but more so to find, you know, local solutions for local problems. One... Huge issue we have, not just in Kenya, but in Africa is unemployment, the rate of unemployment, and imparting practical skills to young people that they can use to actually get employment, be it start their own businesses or actually go get like vocational training that they can actually go get a, a job somewhere. So we use two curriculums. We have our own in house curriculum that's very practical, where Young people get to learn about coffee from the seedlings, like how to prepare a coffee nursery to how coffee grows, the different conditions. So when they get the opportunity, they actually spend time on a coffee farm. And then they also now get to learn all the stuff that they really love, which is the barista skills, the brewing skills, all the fancy stuff that they like to do. (laughs) Because hardly is anyone, very few people are geeky enough to be, you know, excited about agronomy or science. But we find some that are really keen on that. And then the idea is to actually give them internships or to find partners within the industry where they can get more molding in terms of just how to articulate their ideas, but also hands-on experience, whether you want to become a coffee trader, a coffee exporter or things like that. We expose them to all of that experience and then give them options to to pick and choose where they want to to work. Uh, We also use the Specialty Coffee Association uh, Coffee Skills Program, which Given how much people love certificates in any place, <laughs> yes, an education is <laughs> not an education if you don't have a certificate <laughs> that is accredited with an institution. So that yes. is why we, the 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 Specialty Coffee Association Coffee Skills Program is so that they can get those diplomas and have something to show. But also, it, it can also be an opportunity for them to get international exposure eventually. So. How we've run the program so far is by funding it ourselves internally, but also goodwill, like people that are are, our clients that support the students with scholarships Mm. and then just internally, just always fundraising for the project. So, yeah, so that is GDF.
0: Right. And, you know, how, how do you measure success for something like that?
1: That's a really good question. It's more like measuring your impact. So we see, we look at, first of all, like how many students we take on board, um, like the enrollment numbers, but also more importantly, because we have a passion of also just uh, prioritizing women who apply for the program, assist women versus men that apply for, for the program. And then how many of them stick it out to get a diploma or write the exams and pass the, how many of them pass the and get a diploma? And then how many actually get jobs within the coffee sector and how many like jobs with us or jobs with others and how many are still within the coffee sector, like a year or two years later. So, and how, you know, it's a matter of always collecting data and trying to always like keep in touch with, with, right. with the students to ensure that we're actually getting the accurate um, feedback from them.
0: Right. Yeah. That's fantastic. And then you actually created a physical space for all of this to play out. Tell me yeah. about your cafe, the first coffee house in Lamu.
1: The okay, Lamu being, I'd say that's home for me. And it's it's got a really special place in my heart since I started going there about 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. it's, I don't know if you've been to Kenya, Lamu?
0: No? I've been to Nairobi, but not uh, Lamu.
1: <laughs> you should come. And I think everyone that comes to Lamu, Wants to come back and come back and come back. Some people mm-hmm. often stay longer. <laughs> that is that is my that is what happened to me the first time I went. And because the people there are honestly like some like the vibe in Lamu is so different in terms of the honesty of the people and how welcoming they are. People say Kenyans are welcoming, whatever. But go to Lamu and it's a different kind of like I'm at home kind of vibe. And I saw you know this this group of people, this Lamuians who sometimes are also taken advantage of by, you know, the sometimes you find a lot of the businesses there are also foreign owned, like in terms of the hotels and the mm-hmm, Airbnbs. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it like some of the investment is more extractive rather than putting back in the community. Right, right. I've always been passionate about education and giving people skills that they can actually use on their own. So I felt like Okay, other than fishing and whatever, because not the women, give, being, give, being that it's a Muslim community, obviously the women can't go fishing. There's a very limited number of things that the women on the island can do for jobs. So for me, one thing was to create a solution for the, the women, the Muslim girls, who can't primarily just hop on a boat or go hustle tourists for gigs, mm. was to create a safe space for them to come, learn a skill, and still comfortably work in their hijabs, you know, behind the coffee bar, serve clients, a space where they can mm, feel like mm. they're safe and we respect the culture and we don't serve alcohol and all of those things, just respecting mm-hmm, local culture mm-hmm. and providing a safe space. The other was obviously like when it's low season or when there's not a lot of tourists, a lot of people have nothing to do. And the poverty levels are quite high and also the illiteracy levels. So, and very few people had the resources to actually go invest or leave Lamu to go get a skill. So I felt like someone who has been coming in as a Kenyan as well. I, I felt like this was the kind of place that I could sort of set up something special. And also the coffee offerings on the Island were terrible. So I was just like, no. I was like, there's no way. to save Lamu- this situation. I can't I survive. Like, I need to salvage this situation because every time I would travel to Lamu I'm staying at like a nice Airbnb or hotel and you're getting crappy coffee. I was just like, nah. And I was like, I'm not going to be pulling <laughs> out work. My, my coffee brewing kit all the time just to brew my coffee. I have to create a space for this type of thing. And so I started talking to some of my partners, like people that buy my coffee. And I just ran the idea with some people that I really you know, trust, whose opinions I trust. And I was like, mm. Do you think this could work? Whatever. So I started looking for real estate on the island. And to be honest, like I never expected it to be in Lamu Old Town because there is, if one. when you come to Lamu, you'll understand oh, there's wow. Shella, which is the more bougie side of Lamu. And then there's Lamu Town where everything started. Like that is the World heritage site. Yeah. But it, over time, it's been so neglected in terms of like, not proper, like lack of proper garbage disposal, you know, facilities and things right. like that. And so I felt... When I was being taken to look at this site, I was just like, mm, "Nah, whatever." Like, <laughs> if you when you watch the video, you've seen how the place looked. Like, yeah, was, yeah. like a bomb had just been my thrown gosh, in. yeah, yeah. It was like, like you must I have like,
0: some kind of vision to transform this. Do
1: <laughs> like, you know? I was just like, so I called my friend, who's the architect I've been working with on this site, and I, I was like, "Hey, I gotta show you something." So she's like, do a video. At that time, she was actually sick in hospital. She's like, let's do a video call. Take me through the space. And I don't know, in my mind, I envisioned a little courtyard in Greece, like a little Mediterranean, whatever. Mm -hmm. I saw the wreckage, whatever. And, you know, I actually thank the universe that the guy that was really pushing me to see the space was so persistent because he had shown me a space in Shella and I liked it, but the deal fell through. But then he's like, no, no, no. Madam, before you leave, please come see this other space. <laughs> so he literally takes me to this place. And like one looks like the space where the coffee bar is right now looked like a dungeon where where things were dying. Oh. then the garden looked how it was in the video. And then and then the moment I got into the garden, my eyes lit up. I was like, whoa, the trees, there was a lovely guava tree. There was this other, there were so many trees. And then I just showed my 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 friend. The video and she's like you gotta take this space you gotta take it you gotta take it how much work is ahead of us like I was, I was just like this is like a a bomb hit the building and we have to like pick up the, the <laughs>
0: so she's the one in the video Jerry yeah Jerry. Like, she was so relaxed you know she's yeah. like oh yeah okay you know I see what can happen here <laughs> I love her because I'm
1: just like we we sort of like, I like uh, the reason I'm also working with her is because we have such similar, you know, tastes and vibes. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. she she knows how to calm down the hecticness. Like, even for me, like, she's just like, I saw the vision and I'm glad she saw it because there's so many other architects who would not have, they would be like, nah, right. I, There's other architects I showed the space and they're like, huh, <laughs> okay. But for her, she was cool, calm, and then every time we hit a snag, she's really calm. She's like, whatever. She's very chill. So that is how like all of this started. Like it was not the anticipated space, but it happened to be the space. And now that mm-hmm. when everything started falling into place, I was like, wow, okay. But now we are actually trying to kick off the second part of actually doing the garden in a more fancy way. And and because now mm-hmm. that I think proof of concept has happened, it's like, the community is now demanding more. They're like, "Okay, can you do breakfast? Can you do nice? Pool? Can you yeah. do whatever?" But all of these things cost ching, and <laughs> <laughs> we're coming.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was watching the video yesterday. And my my husband looks at it and said, "Where's that?" And I said, "Yeah, we're going." <laughs> it's love <Lamu. laughs> <laughs> You have so much creative expression, and I just wonder. If you have a theory about how you turned out the way you did, you know, are there any moments or thoughts that come up that say, you know, yeah, you know, this happened when I was in varsity or whatever, and Mm -hmm. this is why I turned out the way I am?
1: To be honest, actually, people, even my own mother is surprised the way I turned out and like, where does all of this come (laughs) from? To be honest, I feel like deep down, it's from the ancestors, like somewhere like it's like... I come from a family I think that's very creative as well but then because of how society is expecting you to be a lot of the creativity suppressed when you're a child like
2: mm.
1: the moment you're you're steering towards like an artistic thing cuz initially because of like all the things that I was really good at I thought I would be an architect like cuz I really liked I'm very particular I like I like math I was really good at math
2: Mm.
1: But then, but then I also had this brain like my other side is very artistic. So I always like battled with, you know, what career can I pick that'll make my parents proud? <laughs>
0: <laughs> of course, <laughs> <laughs>
1: because one, you cannot go say you're like they've spent all that money and you're like I'm gonna go do art, like I want to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a graphic right. designer. Yeah. They're like, give me back my money. Or so I think. To be honest, it's. It's something from the ancestors, is what I can mm-hmm. I can give it to because I look at both. You know, I look at like you know we talk about this with my siblings as well because we wonder like I've got a sister who's really good at music, but my parents totally refused for her to to follow like a musical mm-hmm. career. they were like, nah, 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 nah. But she later on kind of did that, but also is really good at like public speaking and things like that. Then. My daughter happens to be quite artistic and, you know, very scientific. Mm-hmm. but I feel like a lot of the things are like from the past generation, like the ancestors. And then there's the other thing I attributed it to is by virtue of being an entrepreneur, you've got no choice but to be creative. yeah, and you know, when I made the decision to be an entrepreneur, it wasn't an easy decision. and I was excommunicated from my family for a while, like my mom and I did not talk for years because she felt it was a waste of resources for me Mm -hmm. to like Mm -hmm. go pick a career that she did not invest in because I did a hard actuarial science and finance, you know, statistics Mm -hmm. and finance, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then she Mm -hmm. just felt like it all got thrown away. And then it's like all the life choices I made were, were against how she had raised us, which was you were supposed to get all the good degrees, get a good boyfriend, get married, have kids. And then mine was like, you know, it was done differently with um, not getting married and all of that. So all of those things kind of like affected her. But I said, by virtue of being an entrepreneur and all the, the pushback I got, not just from my mom or the family, was friends not really understanding what you're doing. They're like, you went to Canada to get to do this. And then when people say entrepreneurship is lonely, it is extremely lonely. It so is. I had to take time to understand myself. Mm. And I think a lot of us are afraid of finding out who we are. But the moment you get comfortable with really like listening to what your, your I think what we're meant, what your purpose in life is, a lot of us also don't ask that question. It's like you're moving day to day, just navigating without thinking, without being intentional, really, I think yeah. is the word. Yeah. So when I realized that I was always being pushed in this direction of working with farmers, helping, you know, community, and I realized that there were gains and nobody else could see the gains other than myself and, you know, God or, you know, the universe. I think that is when I, I just got really comfortable with all the gifts that you know that I have and I said when you're an entrepreneur you also have to learn authenticity you can't speak with someone else's voice you can't be a copycat so I would say ancestors and entrepreneurship that is what <laughs> has really like yeah. shaped you influenced. shaped
0: you yeah
1: exactly
2: yeah, yeah.
0: You're listening to Shades and Layers, and my guest is Vava Angwenyi, founder and chief holic at Vava Specialty Coffee. Let's now get into her personal story and, of course, her answers to the Shades and Layers rapid fire. So you've also written a book about your thoughts, which is also a creative expression. And really, I love the photography in there. In fact, we're going to do a giveaway for Shades and Layers listeners of the, the book, Coffee, Milk, Blood. And first of all, wh- why the title and what can people find in there?
1: The title, I would say, was my way of saying that this has not been an easy journey, like to just be myself in an industry that has been so colonial with its, what do I call it? SOPs, is that, what is it called? <laughs> is <that not> the, <laughs> yes, way, those things, the, SOPs. <laughs> yes, the way that it's set up. I mean, the industry is not set up for folks like me to succeed. It's not. Even as a Kenyan entrepreneur, as a woman whose government is always saying they support entrepreneurship, the policies they set up are not for people like me to succeed. It's more for like the big boys. It's it's like, if you don't have money, what business do you have being in this industry? Like, Mm -hmm. none. Because Mm -hmm. I'll never like have enough seed capital to like trade what I want to trade. Like I wanna be able to buy coffee worth maybe a hundred thousand US every week at the auction or but I don't have access that so I'm like the way the system has been set up is not for you. one wow. a young person That's... or a woman oh. to succeed when I was getting to this point where I felt wow okay I have to say something about this but also celebrate how far I've come. I was like rather than this is my blood sweat and tears this has been coffee because coffee is the thing it's it's coffee has been like the engine it's like the vessel that has enabled me to do all the things I'm doing with my life and with communities. So I'm celebrating coffee, but also sharing more about coffee, milk and blood, because one, I come from a community where milk and blood are a delicacy, where there's a certain concoction that's made to actually celebrate and we mix it as Maasai's to drink and make you stronger. Mm -hmm. So I'll say I'm also celebrating a part of my culture where milk that goes with coffee is also a very cultural thing for the Maasai people who are also an extremely exploited community in, mm. uh, in in the world of Africa.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Blood, the blood aspect is all things. It's it's a colonial blood. It's a, it's a blood from colonialism. It's also the blood. It's just, I think you'll see it in the open. It's like the, as a woman as well, the shame that we're made to feel when we, we shed blood, be it when you're having a miscarriage or when you're on your monthly period. So a lot of, I, I, I don't know if the word is juxtaposition. Like I'm like, I'm celebrating, but also... Also the bitterness, like how tough it has to be for one to actually succeed in an industry that is so bloody that it's like someone, you know, this phrase that people say that America was built off of the backs of slaves. I'm like, the coffee industry is built off of slavery and a lot of things that are very colonial, which people may not honor to. But I'm like, it's a very patriarchal, but also very bloody industry where nobody really Very few people really care. It's more about like we have demand for coffee. We'll buy it at whatever price. And we're going to lie that we're doing good with like a project here and a project there. So that is the title came from that. And then I was like, why not? It's a nice title that may make people pick the book. (laughs) Um, Yeah, (laughs) definitely
0: catchy title. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's why. Yeah, that's why.
0: Would you say it's a bit of a memoir or do you still have something else to say and... What would you call it?
1: It's really not a memoir because there's a lot I said some things there that are of course quite personal, but uh, i I still have a lot to say. I was supposed to put out more work, but I would say getting the publishing industry is quite it's it's hard, and it's also this this project did set me back quite a few in terms of like the financial investment, mm-hmm. but i'm there's a huge demand for the book still. So I'm I'm still like struggling to meet the demand. We're trying to produce more books. I, there's a lot more to say. So I, I'm still, I'm going to work on putting out more work when the time is right. Mm. But it's a book that I feel has been really well received, especially by folks in the coffee industry. Right. and And it actually gave me more encouragement to keep, you know, to keep at it and to keep, you know, using my voice to sort of get people to ask questions. Yeah.
0: So what would you call your memoir and why?
1: <laughs> that is, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I would, I, right now I don't have something off the top of my head. And it it's certainly, I don't know, but it's its going to be something better than coffee milk blood for sure. And it's <laughs> its going to have all the juicy, juicy, juiciness.
0: I love of, that. All, <laughs> of all the years. It's going
1: to be a juicy memoir. Ooh, (laughs) can't wait. (laughs) And, you
0: know, let's say you had to turn your life into a movie. Who would you pick for the lead actress?
1: I remember you asked this kind of questions, huh? (laughs) Some people I have in mind, Vivica Fox. Oh, wonderful. No one's ever said that. Yeah. Vivica Fox, who else do I like in terms of like, I don't know why she's the one that just popped in my head, because I think just because I've liked her in roles like Kill Bill, and I think she can kick ass because I also kick
2: ass sometimes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you
1: have to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'd leave it at Vivica Fox. Yeah. Cool, cool.
0: And if you had to organize a dinner and you had the option to invite one famous Black woman, living or dead, who would it be?
1: One famous Black woman. I think someone that would be cool to to hang out with, Viola Davis. Oh, cool. Yeah. I like Viola because she's real. And I recently just finished her memoir as well. Is it called a memoir? Her book? Yeah. Finding yeah. Myself. Mm-hmm. I just like the way she articulated everything about her story, her journey. She didn't, she was just, she she just puts it all out there on the table. She's just real. <laughs> She's just real. And I'm real. Like, I i don't, I like, like, I don't, The life is too short for BS yeah. and like yeah. sugar coating things. Like, so I, it would definitely be Viola if there's room for someone else, Oprah, but Viola would be my right. person.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. And that is all from me this time around. If you'd like to learn more about Vava and her work, please visit her website and Instagram page at Vava Coffee Kenya, which are both linked in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening. Please spread the love and share this episode with a friend. If you haven't already, please head over to your podcast listening app and give us a five-star rating and review. Thank you. I'm Gudlonis Kosana Ritchie, and until next time, please do take good care.